Blog Talk Radio. We are creatures that grow from small beginnings, and what we grow into depends on several factors. One is the conditions that surround us, and one is the extent to which we engage with the life within us. Um, for the past uh, probably 20 years more, education has become a strategic issue around the world. You know, when I was a, uh, a student, nobody was very interested in what was happening in other countries in education. I mean, I was growing up in England. We didn't really care what was happening in Finland. Uh, people in America weren't that bothered about what was happening in Spain. But now governments are. Education has become a strategic issue. And it's become a strategic issue because of the nature and pace of globalization. And education has become seen as a process to encourage competition and economic success between countries. And it's led to the most corrupt and sterile form of education you can imagine for our children. Um, our children are suffering now from high levels of stress than ever before. More and more kids are not graduating from high school. I hate the expression. Is hate a strong word? I hate the expression uh, dropout. In America currently, something like uh, 30% of kids who start the ninth grade don't complete the 12th grade. Um, and the, every single child has a reason for that. I mean, there are trends, but what's interesting are not the statistics, it's the reasons individuals have. But, you know, if you're running any kind of enterprise and you lost 30% of your clients every year, you might wonder whether it was the stupid clients or your enterprise. And to call these kids dropouts makes it sound like they failed the system. And it's much more accurate to say the system has failed them because I don't know any kid who doesn't want to learn. You know, children are born <clears throat> with immense possibilities, I mean, infinite possibilities, and they have a massive appetite to learn. I mean, think what happens in the first 18 months of life. Children learn to speak. Little babies in the first 18 months learn to speak, and nobody teaches them. You don't. If you're a parent, you didn't teach your child to speak. It's far too complicated. You know, you wouldn't have the time, and they wouldn't have the patience. You know, it's not like you sit your child down at the age of 18 months and say, look, we need to talk. <laughs> You know, or, or more specifically, you do. And, <laughs> and this is how it's going to work. You know, you probably notice your mother and I have been making all these noises for the past 18 months. Well, some of these are names of things. We call them nouns. There are other noises we make. They're not names of things. They're names of things you can do with things. We call them verbs. Um, if you change the noise, you can say what you will do and what you have done. Uh, and don't worry about the subjunctive. Nobody gets it. You know, it doesn't work like that. You know, kids absorb um, language through their skin. You nudge them, you correct them, you, you know, you, um, they mimic you, but you don't speak, you don't teach them. And by the way, if they grow up in a, in a home where there are six languages spoken, they'll just learn all of those. Kids love to learn. The problem they have is with education, which is the time when we start to decide systematically to teach them things. And many of the rhythms of education are obstructive to the natural rhythms of learning. So my premise is that children are born with immense natural capacities. Um, they have a tremendous appetite to learn. 
and education has become the problem. When you say what is the aim of education, I'd put it this way, that, um, and I'd love to know what Sadhguru has to say about this, coming from a different cultural perspective, but my take on this is this, that all, all of us are born into two worlds. You know, that there's a world that existed before you came into it. It was there before you were. It's the world of historical circumstances. It's the world that exists whether or not you exist, uh, that would be there when you've gone according to where your metaphysics take you. Uh, but there's another world that exists only because you exist. It's the world that came into being when you did. It's the world of your private consciousness, uh, the world of yourself, uh, the world of, of which it was once said there's only one set of footprints. Uh, but the world of your own anxieties, hopes and aspirations and talents and fears and ambitions and so on. Education is filled with the outer world. And most of the problems that children experience are to do with their inner world. So as I see it, the role of education is to help children understand the world around them. That's clearly essential. Uh, and also the world within them. So that they can become you know, compassionate, fulfilled um, and engaged individuals. And for me, the great deficit in education at the moment is the extent to which we fail to engage the child's inner world and recognize how much they could become if we invested enough of our time, effort, and own conscious understanding into what their possibilities are. So much of your work has been about helping people blossom to their fullest potential to live a full-fledged life. I remember visiting your amazing Isha School, which reflects many of the values that Sir Ken has described. And I wonder if you can tell us, in your view, what makes for a perfect school? And how does uh, Isha or any of your schools address the natural longing in a human being to know? I'm glad that there's no perfect school mm. anywhere. Because this aspiration for Perfection is very death-oriented. It's something that most people have missed. The nature of life is uh, it's never perfect. Only death is perfect. Never has death happened imperfectly. Never has life happened perfectly. If school is about life, then there is no perfect school. Having said that, as someone said, not him, somebody uh, from from England. No, I'm I'm seeing I'm seeing him as a representation of England. <laughs> someone said uh, that education is a necessary evil. It is a necessary evil because uh, there is a resident evil in the in the world. We have very convoluted aspirations in the sense largely most part of the education is trying to manufacture cogs for the larger machine that we have built. Our children are the fuel, unfortunately. We have to put them into some slot where they'll function well. And when we see the world, world is no more about people. The world is about the economic engine that we are driving. It's become bigger than us. We have to keep the engine going, we are scared to stop it for a moment, we have to keep going. Now, the problem is this, that we have created a world, if uh, our economies fail, 
we will be depressed. If our economy succeed, we'll be damned for good. Mm. I feel it's better you're depressed. <laughs> now, talking about a school as a way of manufacturing cogs for the machine, there are many ways to do it. Every nation has its own <coughs> system. If I have to shape you into a particular shape that you must fit into a particular machine, it's a cruel process. But now we can't let the machine fail. It needs spare parts. Constantly it has to absorb. And humanity is the spare parts. So our children are the fuel and the machine parts which go into this to run the larger machine. That's one aspect. So this is why I have addressed education in three different dimensions which people around me are still trying to grasp why these three different things. There is one form of education which is called Ishavidya, I think they might have showed something about that. This is for the rural masses in India, where the problem is they are in an economic and social pit which they cannot get out by themselves. The only ladder for them is education, employment generating education. But there are reasonably well-to-do people where they might have gone through that in the previous generation, but this generation need not think about how to earn my living. They have to look at how to expand who they are. So we have Isha Home School, which caters to that, because this kind of education costs money. So only people who can afford it can do that. Costs money means not like how it costs here. By Indian standards, it costs money. <laughs> And there's another form of education where people are not interested in serving this machine or that machine, they want individuals to blossom. So we have Isha Samskriti, where there is no academic education of any kind. They only learn music, dance, art, Sanskrit language, kalari, which is a very… the mother of all martial arts and uh, classical dance, classical music, yoga, English language as a passport to the world. So these children are a treat to watch. This is how children should have been. Just to give you a glimpse of what it is, at the age of fifteen, for three years they go into monastic life. Compulsorily they must go and compulsorily they must come out at eighteen. They cannot continue. They'll take a monastic life for three years but after three years, they cannot continue. They have to discontinue that and get back to normal life. This is for discipline and focus, but you can't make the entire world like that. This is uh, an ideal to work towards. The idea of this kind of schooling is just to develop human body and human brain without any intention, without any intention as to what they should become. They can become whatever they want. Only thing is, human body and human mind should grow to its fullest capability and attention is the main thing. An indiscriminate and unprejudiced attention is what we are trying to evolve in the children, that they learn to pay attention to everything the same way, that you don't divide the world as something as good and something as bad, something high, something low, something divine, something devil, something filthy, something sacred, no you learn to pay the same attention to everything. This is the fundamental of this form of education. 
what will they do? What will they do is the aspiration. So I guaranteed them one thing, twelve years, if you enter the school, the commitment is for twelve years. You have to, six if you come, eighteen if you, you can leave. So they asked me, what will the children do? I said, one thing I'll assure you, we will not give you a certificate in the end. They said, Sadhguru, what? I said, uh, did anybody ask me, what is my certification? Only in the American embassy they asked me. So I said, no certification because doors in the world may open little slowly for you, but when they open, they stay open because… not because of qualification but by competence you open doors. It is just that everybody is in a mad race, your children should do better than your neighbor's children, this is a disease. I agree. I didn't know you're unqualified, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, I, I, I actually have to go. <laughs> that is the only qualification I have, and that is the only striving in my life how to remain uneducated. <laughs> because this is the biggest problem. Why education has become a problem in the world is. People become who they are in the world because of what they have gathered. This is a very unfortunate situation. Right now, whether it is material things or knowledge, whatever information they have gathered, it makes them who they are. Now, who you are and what you have gathered are two different things. This is the distinction we are trying to bring into child's life in our schools. Whatever you may gather, it doesn't matter. What you gather is just information and things. Information is a thing by itself. It should not determine who you are. Who you are is determined by a different process, what you gather by a different process. So when I keep repeating to everybody, some… lot of these people feel ashamed, my guru is uneducated, they try to say, no, he only says that he's really educated <laughs> What I'm saying is, whatever I have gathered does not determine who I am because the biggest problem in the world is this, from the day you are born, all kinds of people are trying to teach you something that's not worked in their life. I think if I can say one of the, the, uh, the major problems, <coughs> excuse me, I agree with all of that, is, is that we didn't have uh, systems of mass education uh, as we know them now, pretty much until the middle of the 19th century. You know, they were invented, um, made up, Yes, it was part of the Industrial Revolution and it was um, associated with the big move from the countryside into the cities to provide a workforce for the uh, industrial economy. It's very straightforward from that point of view. Um, it was a massive piece of social engineering. It's why uh, the system is shaped the way it was. We needed a majority of people to do blue-collar work, uh, which is why we had a broad base of elementary education and a relatively small group of people to do um, clerical administrative work in suits, which is why we had a small university sector. And the system was created that way. In Britain, you know, when I was at school, at the age of 11, well, we all took an exam, I'm sure Ian would remember it, uh, it's called 11 plus, uh, and it determined at the age of 11 which type of school you went to, at which sort of high school, a grammar school or a secondary modern school. It was really an IQ test, but people thought it was a blood test you know, that told them how smart they were. And actually, it was just a capacity to do that type of test. And like a driving test, you could get better at it. And, uh, and I mean, a lot of people were trained to do it, and, and they got through it. But the consequence of it is that we created um, this um, kind of 
system where there were a small group of winners and they did very well by it, but the vast majority didn't. And part of the problem, as I see it, is that um, the, the system of education is burdened with certain ideological um, assumptions. One of them is a whole set of ideas about intelligence. Uh, so uh, the whole ideal of Western education is to get people to university. And therefore, and it's because the universities abrogated the system to their own purposes. And uh, therefore, we have in the system this deep, deeply mistaken assumption that, the, that intelligence is the same thing as academic ability. Now, and academic ability is very important, but it's a very specific capacity, you know, the capacity to certain types of deductive reasoning, certain types of critical discourse. Um, but the upshot is that if you're not very good at that, you're thought not to be very smart. Because um, the, the truth is, if you create a very narrow conception of ability, you create a very big conception of disability and inability. Um, I, I just said, uh, as we're doing personal stories for a second, um, I'm from Liverpool in England, and um, I'll, I'll mention one thing. I went to school across the city centre from uh, the Liverpool Institute, which is where Paul McCartney was at school. I didn't know him then. I'm sure some of you people do know him quite well. But I, his, um, uh, I wrote a book a few years ago called The Element, How Finding Your Passion Changes Everything. And I interviewed lots of people for, for the book, uh, one of whom was Paul McCartney. And I tell you this because I think it's very important you don't leave here today unaware of the fact that I hang out <laughs> with, with Paul McCartney. Anyway, Paul, as I call him, was, 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 um, I asked him, I interviewed him for the book, and I said, did you enjoy music at school? And uh, he said, no, he hated it. I said, did your music teacher think you had any talent? He said, no, not really. He does, doesn't he? And then uh, one of the other people in the same music program in the same school was George Harrison, uh, you know, the lead guitarist of the popular music group, the Beatles. And, and I said, did, any, did your music teacher think you, George had any talent? He said, no, not really. Um, I said, well, look, would this be a reasonable comment that there was this one music teacher in Liverpool in the late 1950s who had half the Beatles in his class? And he missed it. He said, yes. Well, it's a bit of an oversight, isn't it? So... <laughs> Anybody stand out in your class this year, Mr. Wilcox? Not really. <laughs> Nobody leaps forward, frankly. What I mean is, if, if you create this narrow view of ability, then you automatically suit all this other stuff. I mean, in, Sankar may remember this, but in the um, 50s, there was a big polio epidemic you know, that ran right through America and Europe and um, and I got it, you know, I was one of the, the, I'm one of seven kids, I was the only one in the family to get it, and the only one in the street to get it, you know, despite my vigorous attempts to cross infect the entire neighborhood, you know, I thought, you're, you're coming down with me, you know, but anyway, I was in hospital, and I, I ended up going to, uh, into special ed for, from, that's five till 11, and um, that's what they used to do, so, so I was in a school which had lots of kids with polio, um, uh, lots of kids with cerebral palsy, uh, partially sighted, blind, deaf kids. Um, I was sitting next to one kid in school who had a really bad uh, case of cerebral palsy. And it's a terrible thing to deal with, you know, because if, 
you know, if you don't have it, you, know, if you can just, to move your arms around, you just have to relax muscles and contract them. You don't think about it. But if you've got cerebral palsy uh, or affected by it, you're fighting your body all the time. So you're doing this type of stuff. And, and if you try to speak and it's affected your face, it, it's, you sound as if you're talking nonsense. And, and of course, you may talk, be talking absolute sense. It's just you can't get the sounds out. Anyway, so the guy sitting next to me uh, in one, my final year at the school um, couldn't grip a pencil in his fingers um, but he could grip it in his toes. And he had beautiful writing, better than mine, actually. What's his handwriting? <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. <laughs> but, um, but the point is, we were surrounded by people like this. I was saying, I mean, my classroom at, at school was like the barroom scene from Star Wars. You know, there were kind of people in various degrees of decrepitude, you know, being brought in. But nobody was interested in what people's disabilities seemed to be. What were interesting was what they were good at, and if they were smart or interesting or what. And the fact is that many of the things that they had difficulty with weren't what really defined them. But because there's this narrow view of ability, if you have trouble writing or speaking, it's assumed that you have some associated mental incapacity, which is why you get this big conception of disability surrounding it. But if you reframe the conception of ability, suddenly you discover all these talents and possibilities that are inherent all the time. Now, I mention it because it's a dramatic example, of special ed is to me, of what happens all the time in general education. Um, all kinds of kids are told they've got problems who don't have them. They're created by the system. And it's the problem of the system that we need to, to address, that if you reframe ability, all of these difficulties that people seem to be suffering from suddenly disappear. If you find the things they're good at, if you do as Sadhguru is suggesting, if you create an environment which is holistic, which is addressing your spiritual development, your physical development, which recognize that human life is not linear, it's organic, and it will take many different courses, then you have a completely different set of conditions under which people will flourish. And it's the fact that the, the conditions themselves, which are industrial in character create problems for kids which they then begin to rail against so we now have a system based on competition narrow view of ability and one in which people are being medicated to stay with the program they're being pathologized for losing interest in what is essentially very boring stuff um, we sit them down all day long and wonder why they fidget um, and there are different ways of doing it better ways i mean for me it's it's as plain as day really it, you know, education is not one of those things like an incurable disease and we can't figure out what to do. We know what to do in education. It's about taking this thing to scale. But taking it to scale doesn't mean replicating it because, as you say, there's no perfect school. Actually, there are no two, two schools alike, but like there are no two individuals alike. But there are principles you can apply everywhere. And getting those principles in place to me is the big challenge now. to Raising Independent Thinkers. This show is a space for families who are homeschooling or thinking about homeschooling. We'll explore alternative teaching methods, federal and state homeschooling laws, and most importantly, this show is a platform where families can inspire one another on how to raise independent thinkers. I'm your host, Bathsheba Omani, Montessori educator, homeschooling consultant, owner of Homeschool Guide, LLC, and mother of two. Let's get started.
Good evening, everyone. Today is October the 11th, 2020, and this is the Raising Independent Thinker Show. I'm your host, Beth Sheba. Hope your week has been going well. Mine has been going great. I've been conducting some parent-child classes this week here in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, and I'm currently focusing on a sensory series of lessons for young children. You know, within the work that I do, I feel I'll always have the love for interacting with young parents and their children, and it's always been a way for me to support and share knowledge within the community. So if you are in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, I will be providing another series of classes late November. So please subscribe to my website, home-schoolguide.com, and you'll be able to find out all the things that I'm doing. Um, the classes do fill up quickly because I'm only taking the first six families. So just um, keep an eye, keep checking the website. So today I'll be continuing the discussion on parent-issued diplomas and transcripts. You know, when I first learned about homeschooling parents issuing their child's diploma, the first thought in my head was, is that legal? And will it have equal standing to a state-issued diploma? And the quick answer to that is yes and yes. Homeschool is legal in all 50 states. Therefore, parents are responsible for issuing their child's diploma and transcript. And I'll talk a little bit about this more into the show. But before I get into it, I wanted to talk a little bit about the clip that you just heard um, with Sir Ken Robinson and Sadhguru. Ken Robinson, some of you know, is one of my favorite speakers and advocates for education who actually sadly passed away this past August. And Sadhguru is an Indian yogi and author. But I feel that both men equally have more of a holistic point of view, and they both have been wonderful advocates for education. So this clip is actually an hour and 43 minutes long, but I only played 20 minutes of it. I might play a little more of it later on in the show, but I love this idea of understanding what is ideal education. And what that might look like for one person may not look like that for another. And that's why education is so wonderful. I love how Ken Robinson talks about the term dropout and says that in America, there are 30% of kids who start different reasons don't complete the 12th grade. Now, 30% is a large percentage, and you have to ask yourself, what is really causing this? And the term dropout has always had this negative connotation that makes it sound like the child is somewhat of a failure. But for many of us, um, we don't really take the time and think maybe it's the system that's really failing our kids. In the years that I've been working with young children, I can see that they truly love to learn new things. I remember when both of my children were young, they would ask so many questions like, <clears throat> Mommy, why is the sky blue? Or, Mommy, why do people get sick? And it's important that we continue to encourage these this natural way of learning and encourage them to ask questions because 
I think it becomes a problem when they stop asking the questions and they're no longer interested in learning. And as parents, I think we need to investigate the causes of them not wanting to learn. So thinking back, there was never really a time that I wanted to actually drop out from school. I have thought about not going, but never completely dropping out. But I definitely see many reasons why a kid would want to. And when it gets to that point, this is when the parent needs to step in and say, how can I help my kid love to learn again? Another point that uh, Sir Ken made in the clip is about teaching. And I love the example that he gave about how children learn to talk through absorbing language and how we can't teach a child things, but they learn through absorbing and experiences within their environment. And I feel this goes for so many lessons in life, and not only children, but for adults as well. The best way to learn something is to experience it for yourself. You know, I can have someone lecture to me on how to do something, but it's not till I apply the knowledge that I've learned, then will I learn the lesson completely. And I think this is one of the issues about our public school system is that kids are not getting enough opportunity to apply the knowledge they're learning. So then what happens? It goes in one ear and, and then out the other. And lastly, the idea of disability and how our culture defines it. My son was actually diagnosed with cerebral palsy at the age of three and he was born premature, which led to his brain developing at a slower pace. And as a parent, when, when we see our children grow, we look for certain milestones in their development. And when we don't see those milestones happening by a certain time, we automatically want to put a label on our child as having a disability. And I realized that there were some things that my son had to work harder on but he also had many strengths, as we all do. And I have to say there were times that I focused more on those areas that he needed to work on but didn't encourage the things he did really well in until he was much older. So I like that Sir Ken pointed out the benefits of focusing on the abilities rather than disabilities and that it's because our abilities are what shapes us. <clears throat> our abilities is what essentially becomes our greatest gift. So currently, my son has graduated from high school, and he's been into audio editing, specifically voice voices over um, virtual stories that he creates. And he told me just yesterday that he wanted to start up a website to show people how to edit their voices. And with all the challenges that he's faced in his life, I'm so proud of him, you know, and all of his gifts. Okay, so going back um, to the topic of parent-issued diplomas and transcripts, and um, like I said before, homeschool is legal in all 50 states. A diploma is merely a certificate it certifies that your kid did everything they needed to graduate. It also represents, of course, the years of effort and time and sacrifice um, made by your child that's required to pass the high school requirements. 
whereas a transcript is an, is an official record of your child's work, showing specific courses taken and grades achieved. It also shows your child's GPA. So the diploma is the final reward on the work that is detailed on the transcript. And the transcript is what colleges really look at when your kid is applying for admissions. And there are actually many colleges adjusting their admissions policies to be more friendlier to homeschool applicants and more flexible. A lot of people don't know that. Um, so there should never be a worry of your kid getting into college if that's the route they want to take. Homeschooler applicants actually stand out to Ivy League universities. So again, there should be no concerns of your high schooler getting into college with a parent-issued diploma. And I think the reason why I didn't believe it at first, that I didn't believe that it was that easy, is because I thought that a diploma can only be given to a state-certified institution, and that is just not true. Many states have actually adapted and put into their codes um, the Diploma Fairness Act, which states a person who administers a program of secondary education at a public, private, or home school that meets the requirements of the state may issue a diploma or other appropriate credentials to a person who has completed the program of secondary education. Such diploma or credential is legally sufficient to demonstrate that the person meets the definition of having a high school diploma or its equivalent. So that basically is saying that a parent-issued diploma has equal standing to a state-issued one. I also feel um, that people have doubts about homeschooling in general because of many of the missions. And some of the bigger ones are um, like thinking your child is not going to learn how to socialize, which is a very strange thought because you as the parent can create so many opportunities for your child to socialize. There are plenty of ways to socialize outside of school. And it's funny because I know when I went to school, there wasn't much positive socializing going on. Like we weren't even able to talk to each other in class unless it was like during lunchtime <clears throat> or a group project or something like that. Um, another misconception is that you don't have enough education to teach your child. And I've spoken with many people that feel this way. You don't need to have all the answers. You just need to help your child know where to find them. And that's something um, that's important. That's something that you should keep in mind when when starting to homeschool or when thinking about homeschooling. And many states are not even requiring you to have a high school diploma, which is very interesting to me. Um, I was going over the Texas state law for homeschoolers, and they don't require the adult that homeschools to have a high school diploma. And there are many states with, with very few requirements. Another misconception um, that I think people have is that they don't have time. And it always seems like we never have enough time, but I strongly believe that you will find time um, if it's important to you. 
and you might even need to sacrifice for it. Good about homeschooling is that there are no set time schedules that you have to follow. So you create your own schedule for your kid that works best for your family. So that means if you choose to homeschool Wednesday through Saturday from 2 to 6, then that is what your schedule will be. And I've mentioned before that both of my children went to public and private schools while I worked, but I would take opportunities to teach them at home as much as I could, mostly practical life skills and for my son especially language arts and reading because um, that's where I felt he needed more support and experience. But the point is I found the time to do it. So I'm going to take a short break. Um, if you want to join in on the conversation, please hit the number one. Also, um, I am offering custom diplomas for purchase. It includes the gold certified seal of academic achievement along with the leather, the, the leather diploma cover. So if you are interested, please go to my website. I also have the recording for the webinar Akeem and I did on how to homeschool, and that's available as well on my website. Okay, I'll, I'm going to take a short break, and I will be right back. As uh, we are looking for an evolution of a human being through the education system, the education system should be always an evolving process by itself. When we think in terms of a perfect school, we're thinking of again fixing it somewhere. That's what needs to change. As one can develop, uh, because uh, can mention this IQ test, I'm saying, as one can develop muscle by doing certain things with the body, one can develop intelligence. The fundamental aspect of developing intelligence is Right now, there are some studies, I, know, I don't know, you must tell me, I'm not an expert on these things, which say if a child goes through twenty years of formal education and comes out with a PhD, they say seventy percent of intelligence is irrevocably destroyed. Because Sorry, we are… I, I have a PhD, I don't know if you're <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that to you, Ken. <laughs> so, uh, essentially what's being said by the studies is uh, we are mistaking information for education. By deadening the brain with too much information, definitely the possibility of intelligence is lost. This is why I said what we accumulate and who we are should remain separate. Who I am should not be influenced by what I have accumulated, whether they're material things or information or impressions, this is of the world. I would like to little differ in what was said in terms of child's inner world and external world. What we are mistaking to be inner world is still external in my perception because a child's fears, ambitions, aspirations are all external, inspired or infected, I would say, by the outside situation. It is not natural aspiration of life 
natural aspiration of life, if you look at it, if you leave someone uninfluenced from outside, the natural aspiration is always to expand, not to become less. But if you look at today's form of education, because it's purely intellect-based education, there's no other dimension of intelligence in it. And I think in this part of the world there is a serious mistake that intellect has been mistaken for intelligence. Intellect… your intellect can function only with the backing of your memory or in other words, your intellect functions with accumulated information. If I take away all your memory, your intellect is quite useless by itself. But there are other dimensions of intelligence within you which does not need the support of memory. If education systems do not focus on activating these dimensions of intelligence, you will find factory workers, you will not find a genius in every home. What you need is an innovative intelligence. Today when I say… when I use the word innovation, you think developing a new I-8 phone. I'm not talking about that. Maybe we can develop a world without a phone. <laughs> We don't know what's an innovation. Innovation need not necessarily mean improvement of what we have little by little, little by little. Yes, that is also needed but that is not what life is looking for. People are not any better with phone, without phone. Maybe we are doing more things but equally confused, equally struggling as it was before. So the point is not about what we have gathered. What we have gathered is useful in creating comfort and convenience for the world. What we have gathered is not useful for creating well-being for ourselves and for the world. If well-being has to happen, we have to access dimensions of intelligence which are not intellectual because intellect cannot function without accumulated information. If you function always out of accumulated information, you naturally get identified with it so depending upon what you have accumulated, you become that kind. Because you have become that kind, another kind and your kind always goes into conflict. If the purpose of education is to expand horizons of individual human beings, you can see that's definitely not happening. The more educated somebody becomes, as people get educated, they really can't get along with anybody. <laughs> they not so educated people can live together, hundred people can live together. Once you become educated, you become isolated because this is the nature of the intellect. Because you're employing only one wheel out of four wheels of your car, it is like that. It's like suppose you're driving on the street and you are some kind of an expert, you drive on just two wheels. What, Moish, you do? You got a car for that <laughs> You're driving just on two wheels. Maybe you're good at it, but nobody else on the street want to drive with you, they will all stop. If you're driving on four wheels, everybody will drive with you. So the other dimensions of intelligence have to come, otherwise the moment you get intellectual unknowingly, you in some way you exclude the world. So in a way, the way of our education has been to butcher the existence into tiny fragments and we're trying to fix the fragments, it's not going to work like that. If education has to become holistic, there are systemic problems, I'm not saying no, but more than the systems, 
the people who deliver the system, if we can upgrade them in a huge way, every system can be made to work good. I have seen in India, the most rudimentary system is the state education. I have been there to these schools before we went into starting our own rural schools, I just wanted to see what's right or wrong with these guys. I found some schools are like as good as uh, pig's day in terms of what they're producing. Some schools, same stuff, but they're doing wonderful work. So it's the people who deliver that. Whatever the system, if you upgrade the people who deliver this, you're the best people. See, if we are interested in the future generations of our humanity, the best people in the world must go into teaching. But right now, the lowest grade of people are going because everything is determined by economics. How much are you paid? That's how you go. So this is where what I'm saying earlier is important. What you accumulate should, should not determine who you are. As long as that is so, the economic values will rule. As long economic values rule, it's the muscle which rules, not the intelligence. We tend to measure what we value when you were talking about standardized tests, but so much of teaching and learning is about relationships that imply intimacy and caring and witnessing and seeing one another with the teacher. And I know you have a story about the teacher, the doctor, who noticed that the little girl who was fidgeting was actually a dancer. Yeah. So how do we... Is it about training the teachers or is it supporting the teachers in a different way? How do we create inspiring teachers or give them the room to help foster all the different types of intelligence they both have been speaking about? Well, you know, there are, <coughs> excuse me, there are several strands to uh, education, obviously. <coughs> One of them is the um, curriculum. I'm talking about organized education. I mean, um, people learn on their own. And, and, and can learn informally. But if we're talking about organized education, <clears throat> um, as in the schools that Sadhguru is describing or the schools you've been involved in, there's always a curriculum, uh, which is what we want people to learn. So a big part of this argument is we need a different sort of curriculum. At the moment, uh, in America, for example, we have a very narrow curriculum that's based primarily on a fairly impoverished view of science, technology, and math. I say impoverished because math can be a fantastically invigorating and interesting discipline. Years ago, uh, I asked uh, a professor of pure mathematics at the university I worked at how you would assess a PhD in pure mathematics. Um, his intelligence had gone at this point, obviously. You know, but <laughs> Only 70%. Only 70%. But, <laughs> but the small shard of it that was left, I said... <laughs> I said to him, how would you assess a PhD in pure math? Uh, actually, first I said to him, how long is a PhD in pure math? Because I'd never seen one. And uh, he said he'd seen one recently that was 20 pages long. You know, like 20 pages of math. You know, page after page of math with equals at the end. And, and I imagine I'd never seen one. So, so I said, well, how would you judge one? Uh, I mean, presumed it's right. You know, you'd be annoyed, wouldn't you? Spent f five years doing a PhD in pure math, comes back wrong. <laughs> See me. <laughs> and uh, he said, no, they're, they're normally right. I said, well, how would you judge one? And he said, there are two criteria. 
there's originality. In other words, it's how creative it is. I'd like to talk a bit more about creativity in a bit, but, but it's about whether it breaks new ground. But the second I loved, he said it's aesthetic. I said, why does that matter? He said, because mathematicians believe that mathematics is the purest way we have of describing some of the truths of nature. And since nature is inherently beautiful, the more elegant the proof, the more likely it is to be true. You could be talking about a sonata or a dance or a poem. And of course, mathematicians do feel that way. To a mathematician, mathematics is a beautiful abstract language like poetry. And the problem people have is they don't speak math. You know, if you don't read music, if you look at a, a page of notation, what you see is a visual puzzle. If you read music, you don't see a puzzle, you hear a symphony. And it's the same with mathematics, that mathematicians who speak math see a symphony. They don't see a puzzle. And so a lot of the problem in mathematics is that it's, it's a literacy problem. We, just, we have phrase book math. You know, it's like trying to court somebody with phrasebook French. It's just not a very good idea. Take my word for that. It doesn't work out. Um, so, so, um, so part of it is that we have a limited conception of, of these disciplines, a fairly impoverished issue. And what I'm arguing for, and it's implicit, I think, in what I understand from what I've read about Sadguru's schools and what he's been telling us, is you need a broad curriculum that recognizes that education has a whole range of functions and that we have to address physical development, spiritual development, our emotional development, and all of that is tied up with a, a bigger view of consciousness. And therefore, you need a school curriculum which has the arts, the humanities, uh, the sciences, technology, not incidentally, not in a hierarchy, but equally and co-equally important. Okay, um, I'm back. So I forgot to mention that with the customized diploma um, that I'm providing on my website, you must send proof of your letter of intent to homeschool if your state requires it and some other if verifying information. Um, I'm actually working on one this week and about to mail it in and you know it's pretty exciting. Um, I also provide customized transcripts as well and I'll talk a little bit about what that entails. Again, if you have questions or comments or just wanna join in on the conversation, please call in at 425-569-5169 and hit the number one. Um, another thing um, I wanted to mention is that I did get engaged over the weekend. <laughs> um, and I'm very excited about that. He's actually listening and maybe we will get on the show together and talk about it. Okay, so okay, I think I have a caller. Nine eight zero. Hey. Six one three. Hi, what's up? Hey King. Oh, not much. I was listening to the show. Man, that was a, a good clip you played about you think so? school. Yeah, because I actually experienced that in school where uh, I was stuck in special education in the mm. ninth grade, I think it was. Well, it was after my ninth grade. I was having issues with mm -hmm. the high school. I was a pretty small guy in school, so that was a time for people to bully me. But 
me right. coming from the Bronx, raised in Brooklyn, I wasn't having it, so I was fighting pretty much every day. But right. they but took that it, as that fighting as a behavior or a learning disability, which I didn't have. Um, right. But isn't it crazy how they'll put, because I remember in high school, they used to put a lot of people in special ed, and it was for different reasons. Yeah. Like, I mean, right. this it, guy, like, he was talking about he had polio, and he was put in special right. ed because he had polio. That mean you can't learn. Yeah, I think that's where they stick you when they don't want to deal with you. Um, mm. But they, you know, just to show you with the process to even get in there to, to, before they qualify, they have you ask you all these dumb questions and look at these pictures and these these cars that, and you tell them what do you see in the in the picture? Like it'd be blobs of black ink and all of this crap. Do you see mm-hmm. this? And just so I, I, it was it was about a few hours of that. And then, right. oh, yeah, we recommend this and that. But the thing is, that test is bogus because they're going to recommend <laughs> you anyway. They just go through that for the formality of it. Right. And I'm in the class right. with people who really got issues, like, you know, guys rocking back and forth consistently right. and talking to the teacher about sexual things with the teacher. Like, I'm like, is this really going on in, in the school? It was crazy. So when I left that high school and went to my neighborhood high school, they saw my reading and math scores, and it was like they couldn't believe it. They were like, how are you in this, and and, 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 and you have these scores. So I had to wait out a semester, and then they put me into honors class right after that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so That's crazy. It was just a sham. The <laughs> so whole, from special ed to honors. Uh, but I went straight from there. Like, I had to do one marking period, one nine weeks of special ed in the new high school mm-hmm. because they, that's the, what was the policy. So once I got out of that, they just automatically put me into honors class. So it was a school which was mostly, the first school was mostly run by Europeans. The second mm-hmm. school was, you know, my neighborhood, which was most people who looked like me, who actually cared about my education. Mm-hmm. So uh, they, uh, so the, that was it. So I know special education is a piece of crap. It's, it's, it's a place to stick kids. And then I found out that special education, the schools get more money. Every child that they label special education is right. more right. money provided for that. But they get, they're getting more money but not providing education. They're right. actually providing less education. They just kind of stick them in these classes and, oh, well, that's it. And it gives you the worst teachers in the, some of those teachers in those classes. Well, I, I don't know about now because it could be some mm-hmm. special education teachers listening. Uh, but the ones where I was exposed to didn't care. They were either substitutes, you know, right. working there temporarily. They didn't, they, you know, they, they, they were just trying to care with their pay- paycheck. But, you know, it's it's like you said, like many of those students that are in special ed, it's sad because a lot of the uh, teachers or other adults don't embrace their actual abilities or gifts. They just focus on their disabilities. And a lot of those, a lot of those kids are geniuses. (laughs) Like, I mean, like the guy that was just speaking, he was in special ed for, I think he said five years. Wow. Yeah, from seven to yeah, eleven so, years old, four years, 
and now he has a well now he had a you know PhD and he spoke about education all over the world. Right. You know, so yeah, so basically <laughs> these most of these educators don't really know what you know, they, they label people and they keep it moving because they're working in the system that just gives them stuff to do that they have to do by a certain time, no matter if the kid gets it or not. Mm-hmm. You know, right. and then the environment is not a good learning environment at all. It's not. So, looks like you got another okay. caller there. Yeah, yeah, I have another caller. Um, hold on. Do you want to stay on? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay, six zero five two oh two. Are you there? Mm-hmm. Yep. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. Hi. Who was the person on, how you doing? Who was the person on the clip who was speaking about um, the PhDs? The person from um, India. H- <clears throat> uh his name is Sanguru. It's spelled S-A-D-H-G-U-R-U. I'll put it in the chat. Okay. Because um, I like what he said about PhDs after uh, being in school for a number of years. You actually have about uh, 30% of your intelligence uh, just scooped out of you. Um, I thought that was pretty cool. What I right. called up to find out was um, when it comes to your making up a curriculum, or if not you, but for homeschooling, can the parent, um, can she focus or he focus on logic and critical thinking? Or do, or do the parents have to follow a state curriculum? So depending on the state, most states, you can create your own curriculum. Um, some states okay. give you choices, but for the majority of the states, you can create your own curriculum. So if you want to teach your child critical thinking skills, um, that's, that's all the parent's responsibility. So to answer your question, yes. All right. So if the curriculum can be made up. I want to add to that. Even if the state has, something that they want you to do, some requirement, you could factor in pretty much what you want to add to it because you are the parent and you're in control. Whereas if you sent them off to the school, it's basically what they say the child is going to learn. You know, there's nothing extra, nothing more or less. So you, you can you can get creative with whatever they're asking you to do. And like Steph said, most times they don't really have a requirement. Uh, and also if they did have a requirement, it's so relaxed that you can fit that yeah. into their critical thinking into okay. it. Yeah. All right. Now, now what state are you other... in? Montana. Okay. So here's my other question. If, if parents um, have the latitude to basically create their own curriculum, then how does one judge when at the end of, I presume, four years, let's say it's four years, that these uh, marks 
that the diplomas are worthwhile diplomas. Some mm-hmm. parents may want to focus on physical education or home or um, home economics. Um, at least when you go to school, you have standardized you have standardized tests, and you know whether or not the the kid has learned something by mm-hmm. passing um, standardized tests, the regents, etc. So how do you have uh, a a true evaluation of the diplomas? as being worthwhile if everybody can make up their own diplomas and make up their own curriculum. So when you're creating um, a child's transcript, it's important Mm -hmm. to look at the state's specific requirements because some states do have specific requirements. Um, Mm -hmm. And each state has its own system for calculating credits and its own credit requirements for graduation. So, for example, in Indiana – a year-long course is considered to be worth two credits and 40 credits uh-huh. are required for graduation. Now, as, as a parent, you, um, you would figure if your child has completed their requirement for that course. Now I know you said you were in the state of Texas, right? No, oh, Montana. No, Montana. Oh, oh Montana. Okay. I I thought you were yeah. Texas. Okay. Um, and, uh, well, I have to look into Montana, but in New Jersey, a year-long course counts as five credits and 120 credits um, are required for graduating. So every state has its own requirements. So you would just have to look into the state's law. Okay. I'm sorry? But I, without having... All right, but based upon what you said, if a state, for example, has a math as a requirement for mathematics, mm-hmm. do they tell you what books to uh, what books to buy, what what marks that you should have in order to attain an A, B, or C? Because you know there are kids who go to public school can probably get math, but when kids go to private school, for the most part they usually end up with a better education regarding math. So how do they mm-hmm. judge whether or not the um, the requirement is a good requirement, and how do they know that you're fulfilling it well? So what's different about homeschooling and, I guess, traditional learning is that homeschoolers are taught based on um, based on the child. So every child is different. In, in public school – where everyone is taught the same curriculum. In homeschool, you can choose the curriculum that best fits your child. And there's many different curriculums out there. I, I think, we, okay, let, me ask, let me just clarify your question. You want to know, how do you know with the child, whether he got the math he needed to be able to be successful in the world after school? Is that what you're really asking? Well, that's probably as a part of it, but I'm just asking about if somebody, if one school teaches math at a low level and another school teaches math at a very high level, then how do you know um, that the kid who's being taught by the parents, even though they're conforming with the requirements of the state, how do you know that the kid is, is actually acquiring 
good knowledge with regarding math, English, history, etc. Oh, I mean, you'll know by the, you, if you're the parent, you'll know if your child's getting it right because you're the one teaching them. And like you said, they got different curriculums. Like they even have things online where you can do homeschooling courses. And they give you, you pick the math that the child has, if it's pre-algebra or geometry, you give them that to, to learn. And they, they have, you know, little programs you use. But let me, let, let, me, let me just put it into a reality perspective. The trigonometry that I took in school is not what I use in my daily life. In my right. daily life, I'm using adding, subtraction, multiplication, division, basic math. That's what we're doing. And most math we're doing is adding and subtraction. Division and all of that is, is, is extra. That's you don't really run into that. You really if if I give this guy ten dollars and it costs seven dollars and he give me my three dollars back. You see what I'm saying? You know, those types of things is what you're dealing with every day. And most people, if you question them right now, do you remember your trigonometry math? The right, what's an acute angle and all of that stuff? Do you remember that? No, we don't. You know, I took all those classes, but I have I have to refresh myself in order to even use it. It's not something that I use in my everyday life. It's not something yeah, that most math, I don't use it at all in my everyday life, in my life. Oh, no, yeah, most people so, don't use trigonometry or geometry, but... Uh, people should know um, a little bit of trigonometry, a little bit of geometry, and they should know a lot of algebra and advanced math in order to to be able to make change, in order to be able to do household chores, and to do uh, the checkbook. So, so yeah. Let me ask you, but if, how does household chores fit into trigonometry and the advanced math? The trigonometry... Um, if you're going to build something on your own without hiring someone um, for advanced okay. math, if you're going to use algebra in order to figure out um, not only your checkbook, but suppose you want to invest some money into a mutual fund or into some investments in the stock market, you could use that. Right. I use a spreadsheet all the time. So right. oh, if I can Montana see that. has a certain curriculum, yeah, if Montana has a certain curriculum, and let's say Arizona has a curriculum, of mathematics, will those mathematical requirements be basically equal, or how do you know that one curriculum is better than the other? Uh, you won't know unless you test both those kids side by side. Okay, so then um, you know that's the only way you know. So that, but you got to remember what college does. When you send a kid off to college, they review all of the math that you had. Uh, the first year or two of college is all reviewed from what was happening in grades one through twelve, <clears throat> right? <clears throat> you mm. go over, you know, they, they 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 go over the math that you had and see where you are, and if you're not there yet, they're gonna by give then you it's too late. <clears throat> yeah, but by then, no, nah, it's not too late. If people no. go into if people go into, into college late. and they have to take mm-hmm. remedial courses which could have been avoided if the curriculum that they had chosen was the right curriculum. It saves a lot of time well, and Well, that's anguish. up to the parents to choose the right curriculum. But I'm going to tell you right now, homeschoolers uh, is, is more advanced, and private schoolers are more advanced than kids coming out of uh, standard education or compulsory education systems. And mm-hmm. one of the things you started okay. off this conversation with is critical thinking. Mm-hmm. 
And that's something you yeah. need in this world is critical thinking, logic. You know, more than you need all other stuff, you need to be able to, am I making the right decision right now? Can I think, think through this yeah. come with the solve the problem? Even when you mentioned building yeah. something, you know, with, with, with all the YouTube and all of the things and how-to videos, you know, I never knew how to change a toilet, right? So I yeah. pulled up a video and showed me exactly how to do it. I didn't have to yeah. measure anything and cut it. And say, okay, this is what you do. I built some things in my house. I thought, oh, I want to build a, 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 a deck. What do I do? Oh, they tell me what tools I need. I found it. I didn't really have to know a whole lot of math to do that. I just had to watch a video and do it. And someone guided me through it. What I'm saying is some of the things you're talking about around the house with technology today is at everybody's fingertips. Everybody's holding a computer in their hand. So it's not something that if I spent 12 years in school, that I'm going to determine my success. I mean, I worked in, in, in the World Trade Center with guys who barely got out of high school. They had GEDs, and they were millionaires. Right. And they were hiring the guys that had PhDs and bachelor degrees and master degrees to keep their books. Right. They were the ones, you know, make paying them forty, fifty thousand dollars a year just to keep the books. You know, this was a long time ago. We're talking eighties late eighties, early nineties, when you know, that could be a lot more they would be getting paid. What I'm saying is the people that have the highest degrees and the highest education and superior education are working for the people who barely were getting out of high school, went, who didn't, you know, do well in school, you right. know. So I think I think so, we lost. I think we lost him. I think. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, but I I hear everything you're saying. I hear everything oh, yeah, you're saying. Back. And I think he's back. I, I think he's, he dropped, oh, but he's okay. back. There he is. Oh, he's right. back. Okay. I opened up his mic. Yeah. Okay. Hello. Yeah, are you there? Oh, maybe he's know. not he, he, ready. He, he, maybe he's done. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I understand what he's saying. You want to, you know, that is a good question. Most parents can answer. Well, what I do at home right. is, is it just as good as what is it acceptable in the system? And what what you were saying is, it is acceptable. Mm-hmm. And it could be a better advantage. Why? Because the parent is in total control, and they're not. I'm sure a parent is just not gonna. Just send their, send their child Just like a teacher who goes into the field of teaching Wants to teach And mm-hmm. teach children And be effective But she's got 30 children in the classroom That's hard Right This parent right. only has one Maybe two children That's going to be easier for a parent to do You know They might have to work What people have to do is undo The The thought process Of what we've been programmed to believe that the only place you can get good education is you send them to those schools that they have. Right, and right. if that was the case, we wouldn't have such such issues with education in this country. They were asking kids simple questions about uh, state capitals and stuff like that, and people couldn't even answer it. And these are people who graduated from high school. <laughs> Right, because it's you not in their long-term memory. But an, another thing is right. that we need to um, get away from is comparing our children. Right. I never like to compare my child to someone else because my children have different gifts than your children does. 
Right. You know? Right, right, right. So. Right. To me, to me, it doesn't matter if, <laughs> to me, it doesn't matter if my child is learning the same math as your child, especially if she's not going right. to become a mathematician. Right. That math is important if you want to go into something uh, like we were talking about, architecture. You're going to like He's right about the building thing. You need some math skills to divide and multiply and things like that, some fractional skills to figure things out. Um, but I'm not into carpentry or anything like that. I'm going to, you know, if something that gets really complicated, guess what I keep going to do? I'm going to go to my bank account figure out how much it's going to cost me and hire the guy to do it and do who, who did, who knows the math to do it. Well, you're going to research it. What I don't it. know, right. well, I'm a researcher, right? But what I don't know, I could always hire somebody to do it. Mm-hmm. And this is where people have to start thinking. Those guys that I worked with who had the bread, the money, didn't waste their time trying to figure out all that other complicated stuff. Why? Because they had the ducats to, to take care of the problem. So if you elevate your consciousness to make a lot of money and, and become wealthy, you don't have to worry about figuring out all of these these math equations and stuff like that. Now, I think one skill that everybody should have is know how to mm-hmm. understand your bank account, understand how to invest, Absolutely. Uh, things like and, that. And, and, schools and, are not, and schools are not teaching that, by the way. No, they're not teaching you how to count your bank, money in the bank. You're not. I never got one how to balance a check, checking account uh, out of school, which is something which is critical because everyone, when you leave school, you got to pay bills, right? You know, parents are anxious for you to get out. You're getting out there, you're going to get a job, this, that, and the other, uh, and, and be spending your money wildly. They're not teaching you a budget in school. That's not a skill I can get. And these are things we use every day. <laughs> I had to, you know, you kind of figure it out on your own if your parents didn't teach you, you know? Right. Yeah. Yep, yep, you're right. You're absolutely right. So, so I in reality, to, um, all the things that you oh, really need, you're not going to get out of school other than how to be a good citizen. Is That's what the real goal of school is for, following rules and being respectful to authority. Right. That's the real main goal. Well, go ahead. Sorry. Okay. No, no, no. No, I mean, I agree. Um, you know, I was just talking a little bit about the transcript. And now, when parent, if parents want their child or if the child wants to go to college, the transcript is something that is important to look at. And I was talking about how each state has their own requirements for courses and Mm -hmm. um, the grades earned for each course. And I was going to talk a little bit about how to create your child's transcript. Um, And like I said, some states want more details than others, which most states don't, Mm -hmm. you don't need a whole lot of details. Mm -hmm. So um, you want to make sure that your high school transcript stands out if you are choosing to go to college, um, you want to make sure that you're keeping accurate records um, because, you know, with good records, it takes it, the time that it takes to put the transcript together becomes minimal. And another tip is to make sure that you add 
any opportunities that your child might have on the transcript, like if you're traveling, if they're doing work experiences, internships, um, volunteer work, those are all things that um, make the transcript stand out. Right. Okay. All right. Now, you want to know another point that was brought up, standardized testing. What do you think of that? You know, do you think that's a a good gauge of success? For, no. Uh, I, I would have to agree with you because I worked as a manager with less credentials over people who had degrees. Right. And they were in the same working in the same job I had, working up under me uh, with with better with degrees. So, and they, you know, of course, they, they, oh, they always touted their, hey, I had this grade point average, this GPA, you know, I passed these tests and I did all these tests. Uh, I, if I, if, to me, if education and standardized testing was so effective, why there is there such a huge gap between the haves and the have-nots? Oh. Where you're sending your child to be successful, because that's what it's for, to, to be successful, you know, be the, the future of tomorrow or be tomorrow's leaders, then why is there such a gap? So right. like you were saying in the clip, it's not the child who's failing school. It's the system who's failing the child. Right. Because this system is, what, over 50 years old? We're still using educational techniques that was developed over 50 years ago. In a world where we have computers in our pocket, so now when the teacher says something, the kid can quickly verify what that teacher said. It's correct. And we all know that teachers don't always get it right, right? Right. So well, you you asked me yeah, about so you asked me about yeah. the standardized testing, right? Right. And I think what most people are finding out is that scores, test scores, don't really provide a true p- picture of a child's ability. It no, it doesn't. It re- and it really doesn't. So why why <laughs> do we really need them right. if they're not showing? They the have done the studies. You're right. Because they've done the studies, is that some people with those tests won't will not do well on those tests just because of the way they learn, not because mm-hmm. they're not smart enough. It's just the way their brain functions. Those bubbling the test, they will never do well. Then you got some people who will do outstanding on that. Then you right. got some people that do average. Right. So you one method of testing to people or children who are different and they learn different. You know, like I mentioned last week, you know, if I had to take a test and, you know, I did okay on the test where I had to bubble in things, you know, I did average, right? But when it was a test where I had to use my hands and, you know, you know, this was a science lab test where I had to identify parts of an animal and stuff like that, I got number one in the class. Right, right. So does that make everybody else dumb, dumber than me on that part? No, it's just that. No. For me, that was my strength. That's how I learn. I, 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 I can, I can do well in that. 
Whereas for the other people, they do well on the other things, just sitting there bubbling, hey, is this true or for, yes, false, yes or no? Which one is the answer, A, B, C, or D? Right. You know? Right. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, and I, I think another issue, another issue with the standardized testing is um, the pressure for the teachers to teach only to teach for the test. So they're not right. teaching um, holistically or they're not teaching naturally. They're just teaching so that the kids can pass the test. Right. And, you know, there's so much pressure with those tests because a teacher can actually go to jail if she doesn't do that test or she can get seriously reprimanded. You know, some teachers have gone to jail mm-hmm. if they change anything on that test. You ever notice when they do that test, is always one or two extra people in the class? You know you what mean that adult? is for, right? That's for them. Another, like, they might bring another staff member in while oh, they're right. doing those standardized yeah. testing because mm-hmm. that person is there to make sure that the teacher does it exactly the way it is told right. to them to do. That's the, that's the like, the police. So right. the teacher's under pressure to do everything, not to – can't get hands, they get in trouble for that. You, you can't be, you can't, you know, you, you have to give the test exactly how it says to be given. Anything outside of that is unacceptable. So the teacher has pressure on her or him. Right. Now the children have pressure. That is not a good testing environment. And anxiety. And, um, you know, I think assessments are useful. Like tests can be useful mm-hmm. when they're used as data to like help improve the quality of however they're not being used in that way right I think it would be better like if a parent was testing their child to see what they know I think it would be useful for the parent because they're doing Mm -hmm. one on one teaching but when you're doing a, a, a farm or collective teaching in a classroom with 30 40 students and mm-hmm. you know and it's just this blanket test across the board okay you got the data on who did bad and who did good it's like one of you played a recording last week okay so what do we do with it they do nothing right. we just know this kid did poorly and by the time school starts by the time they get the scores school is over so you can't go back and review and help that child now they're on to another level grade level so it's like, okay, he did bad, but we don't go back to fix the problem. Right. You see, so it's really a waste of time, really. But when, you, when you're, when like, assessments is good. If you're homeschooling your child, you do assessments to see where they are, where they need to improve. Now you know where to focus. Mm-hmm. It's a one-on-one thing, and you'll be able to be more effective in that way. Right, right. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's – Standardized testing is always um, a tricky conversation to have, but you know, right. like, I think we need to have it because it's not working. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not working. We know that. We can look at society right now. Right now, this but the things that affect people the most, they don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, they know a lot of stuff that really doesn't affect them on their daily basis. Um, yeah, good conversation. Okay, well, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Akeem. That was a good conversation. 
Mm. So I'm. Oh, by the I, way, I had a question for you. Who's this? This, 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 this guy who you got engaged to? What's oh, that about? I, well, you know him very well. Really, I do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know him very, very oh, well. Okay. <laughs> oh right. Yeah, I was wondering, wondering oh. if you wanted to announce that. <laughs> you already did it. You did it for us. Oh. Okay. By the way, she told the guy she's talking about is me, y'all. Yeah. All right. Well. Okay, well, I think I'm going to end the show for this evening, and um, I did have, I could play the some of the clip, the rest of the clip that I was playing, because it was really good, but okay. thank you for coming on. No problem. Okay, okay well, I hope um, I right. inspired someone today, and um, hope you all have a wonderful week. Stay blessed. All right. Uh, and that the way standards were to be raised was through standardized testing. It's a terrible mistake to confuse standardization with raising standards, I think. But then what happened was they released this um, opportunity to the publishing companies. I I looked at this recently. Um, So on the one hand, you've got conformity is one of the big principles of the current system. Well, if you want conformity, then you need compliance, and that's what the standardized testing movement's about. Uh, And this is a business. That's the point. It's a business, and it's, it's... really stifling our children at the moment. In 2013, we looked at some of the figures. Um, The National Football League in America, which is not, of course, football. (laughs) As as we know. (laughs) I'm a soccer fan. Exactly, exactly. And we have to call it soccer because they appropriated the word football. It's not right. Don't tell me you're from Leicester. (laughs) What? You're not from Leicester. I'm from Liverpool. Okay. It's near enough. <laughs> but, you know, it's rugby, isn't it, in armour? So, <laughs> but the NFL was a $9 billion business in 2013. The U.S. domestic cinema box office in 2013 was an $11 billion business. In the same year, the education, testing, and support industry in America was a $16 billion business. It's massive, you know, it, and it's so, so it's a business. And, uh, and that's what's squeezing the life out of our kids. Now, what, what, the reason I'm saying this is that governments have taken the view that the way uh, you raise standards is by focusing on the curriculum and on testing. And the opposite is true. The only way you improve education is by focusing on teaching. Because in the end, it's children who are trying to learn. It's students. You're trying to get students to expand and to learn. And that's an expert personal job. As soon as we lose sight of the fact that this is a very personal process um, of cultivating interest and curiosity and talent and ability and all of those things and an awareness of the world around you, um, if we lose sight of that and the role of teaching, then we end up in the mess that we're in. But the good news is this can be changed. It is being changed. Um, But I just want to say, too, that a lot of what you talked about, I absolutely totally agree with. I mean, I agree with most of it. I'm not saying there's some bit I just think is nonsense. You know, but, but <laughs> because I haven't heard all of it. But, <laughs> but, but this couldn't be more important. With a PhD, uh, I expect that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Can't grasp all of it. But, <laughs> but, but, the, um, but it couldn't be more urgent, you see. I mean, one of the figures you quote, and I, I, I 
do too, is that um, we currently face on Earth challenges which are without precedent in the history of humanity. I mean, on, on the one hand, you have exponential um, growth in technology and its impact on culture, on economy, on the way that people live. Um, it's revealed all kinds of possibilities, many of them miraculously good. As you said, there are things we're capable of now we couldn't have even contemplated 50 years ago. Um, the big problem is that our spiritual development seems to be lagging a long way behind our technological capacities. Um, secondly, the population now is accelerating at a point where well, we are, we're already the largest generation in the history of humanity. For most of human history, there's nobody around, really. Um, it took a whole of history to get to a billion people in 1800. In 1930, it was 2 billion. In 1970, it was 3 billion. Um, between 1970 and 2000, the population of the Earth doubled from 3 to 6 billion, <coughs> right after the summer of love, as it turns out. <laughs> you can't tell me it's a coincidence. But <laughs> and we're now at 7.4 7 billion, heading for 9 billion by the middle of the century. And we don't know if the Earth can handle it. Actually, we know that it can't. There was a really good program on the BBC a few years ago um, uh, about how many people can live on Earth. It was called, How Many People Can Live on Earth? <laughs> and it was, it was presented by David Attenbury. They're very good at titles at the BBC. <laughs> but they concluded this, that, that, that if, um, if everybody, because you know, we all need, you've made the same point, Sandra, that we all need food, fuel, and water to survive. And and air to breathe. And if everybody on the earth, they concluded, consumed food, fuel, and water at the same rate, all seven and a half billion people, at the same rate as the average person in India, the earth could sustain a maximum population of 15 billion people. So we're halfway there, we're seven and a half billion people. Of course, we don't all consume as they do in India. They said if 